everybody, and welcome back to Catacomb Synod Basics, where we are talking about the distinctives of the Catacomb Synod, what separates us from the mainstream Lutheran bodies out there in the West today, and why we are doing what we are doing with this house church network, why the separation, why the decision to run independent churches. For the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about the pia desideria, or pious desires, of Philip Spener. Why is this important? It's because the pia desideria is the second foundational textbook for pietism, the first being the Bible. Frankly, the Bible teaches pietism, but not just any pietism, not what is currently taken to be pietism today. A lot of later pietists, the Methodists, the Lystadians, and others, went way too far in a direction that I would consider poisonous. They fell into some pitfalls that we're actually going to go over today as we start looking at the conspectus of corrupt conditions regarding the common people, or the laity, as Spener was seeing them in the 17th century. He says, Since conditions are such in the first two estates, which ought to govern the masses and lead them to godliness, it is easy to guess how things are in the third estate. Indeed, it is evident on every hand that none of the precepts of Christ is openly observed. Our dear Savior long ago gave us the mark of distinction. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Here, love is considered the distinguishing mark, and this is not merely a pretended love that is hugged to one's heart in unfruitful embrace, but a love that manifests itself openly. 1 John 3.18, let us not love in word or speech, but in deed and in truth. So what is Spinner getting at out here? If your government is terrible, and if your church body is terrible, what does that tell you about the people that have to obey that government and listen to that church body? How are they going to be, by and large, as people? Now, we were discussing this in the Deacon chat last night. Remember, every time a Catacomb Synod Basics episode comes out, it is after I've run this through with a few of the deacons that are in training with me. The state does not just enforce laws. Yes, its primary concern is the first use of the law, God's commandments. They act as a curb against evil by punishing bad deeds and rewarding good ones. But a state does well to encourage godliness in its population, to tell people you should be going to church, to tell them that societal vices are not acceptable here. Meanwhile, the church, yes, the church is the word and sacrament body. When we think of the two kingdoms, you have God's left hand, civic authority, and God's right hand, the church, where he acts upon all of us. This first and second estate, the church also functions with a first use of the law by catechizing people into what is right and wrong. 
So for all of your life, you have a conscience that tells you, hey, don't do that. Don't do this bad thing. Bad things are going to happen to you if you sin this way. Properly catechizing laity means that they are more likely to follow the laws. And if they are showing each other true love, love for one another as Christians ought to have, then they are taking care of each other's needs. There's less of an outcry for the state to start spending tax money on welfare and things like that. The church and the state, while they do have their own specific responsibilities from God, they can work together in various ways to help the people and for the people to give us a good civilization. The converse is also true. If the government is bad, it's going to harm the operations of the church. If the church is bad, it's going to produce citizens that are bad for the state overall. If you have both that are just rotten to their core, if there are corrupt conditions in both the state and the church, then the third estate, the common people, the laity, your day laborers, your lawyers, your housewives and maids, everything, all of them are going to be in a state of spiritual anarchy, as one of our deacons pointed out. Total anarchy. Every man did what was right in his own eyes, the book of Judges says. People are left without an anchor point, they are left without a good guide. And so chaos happens as people cast off all restraint. Well, most of them anyway. What Spanier discusses in the extinguishing of love and Christian morality in Germany in the 17th century is something we see in the West today. Everybody has cast off restraint. Sin is openly celebrated. Love has been extinguished for the most part. And people are out there trumpeting their false morality, saying that they are good people when it is evident that they are not, if we are using the Bible as our litmus test here. Spanner speaks of that saying, if we judge by this mark, agape love, how difficult it will be to find even a small number of real and true disciples of Christ among the great mass of nominal Christians. Nevertheless, the word of the Lord does not deceive, but remains true now and forever. I want to take a moment to hone in on Spanner quoting 1 John 3.18, Let us not love in word or speech, but in deed and in truth. At the Catacomb Synod, we do not want to be a body of nothing but talkers. So our deacons have been instructed that their job as leaders of home congregations is not just to perform sacrament. They are not just running liturgy. They are not just consecrating the elements at communion, though that is likely the biggest part of their job as deacons. They are also caretakers. We have lost the theology of the seal soga, the soul carer. And I don't care what Lutheran pastors out there say, I, I, I'm a seal soga, I, I'm, a, I'm a soul carer. Chances are, no, you're not. Chances are you define your job as word and sacrament only and have forgotten to give help, assistance, 
and comfort to your parishioners. There are good Lutheran pastors out there, absolutely, and I'm not talking about those who are actually active in their congregations. But so long as the office of deacon has been so demoted, so cast down and trampled by modern Lutheranism today, where deacons are not the helpers and the table waiters that they have historically been, Pastors are supposed to step up and do that. They are supposed to be the most active member of the congregation, serving, working, helping, building if needed, doing favors for people, and if there is a problem, they assist in solving it. Does one of your congregation members need a job? Have you done anything to lift a finger for him to get him that job? Have you tried using your network to make sure he has job opportunities? Is somebody a poor, single Christian that is not intended to be single? They do not have the gift of celibacy. Are you there to help them? Is somebody in financial need in the church? Can you instruct and cajole your congregation to come around them and give them assistance or point them in the right direction? If your job is white-collar only in your mind, you are a talker and a writer and a typist, and you go behind the altar and consecrate the elements and just about nothing else, can you say that you are a seal soga showing as a role model the life of Christian love that you ought to do? For some, the answer is yes, and God bless you for it. But the Catacomb Synod intends to solve much of the lovelessness in Christian laity today by having our deacons, and yours truly, showing that agape love to them, so that we are not just instructing with just word of mouth, but we are also doing. There is a class of non-believers out there who will tell you they stopped going to church because it was quote-unquote too fake. And here is where many pietists in the past have gone wrong. There was a lot of pressure in pietistic churches to have good works, and that became a pressure to signal good works and devotion. And suddenly, not having your life together appeared bad. If you didn't have your stuff together, you were a weak Christian. We intend to abolish this as well, with a belief that we are to be vulnerable enough to express Christian need and give the laity the opportunity to serve, to help, to be open and honest about their true circumstances, whether or not it makes us look bad. If we are going to have leadership in our home churches that really are seal sagas or soul carers, where they do help and show love in deed and in truth and in word, then we are going to encourage the discipline of fellowship. What do I mean by this? Fellowship is a discipline. It requires a bit of discipline to not just go straight home right after the Sunday service or right after the midweek Bible study. It takes a little bit of personal character 
to show up for the coffee hour or to show up for some fellowship time where the nice church ladies have brought over their coffee and donuts or their cookies and people get to know each other. The deacon, as well as any pastor among us in the catacomb synod, is encouraged to take that as an opportunity to be open and to offer counseling and assistance. And the more people truly understand that they are there to learn about one another and enjoy Christian fellowship, the more we have a laity that actually cares about each other. I've said before that one of the greatest travesties to happen to Christianity was the car, the highway system, where people figure they can just fly right home in their automobile as soon as the Sunday service is over and there is no motivation to linger a bit and put some names and faces together to hear how we can help and show each other support. When St. Paul tells us to bear one another's burdens, but we have no opportunity to do so because everybody just goes home, I would say that's a sign that something is wrong. So deacons are leaders. Yes, absolutely. But they are servant leaders. And I am a servant to the deacons. We are here to help each other and support one another. Now that said, while Spanner ultimately points to a lack of Christian love, agape love in society as the biggest problem that he sees among the laity, he also decides to give some examples, namely in the use of alcohol, which we will get to shortly. But I asked the deacons last night, if you were to write the Pia Desideria and you wanted to talk about the biggest sin that you see in the modern world, here in the 21st century, what's going to be target number one for you? One man brought up signaling, virtue and status signaling. Another brought up social media as a cause for that. We have no Christian response to social media these days. We just haven't figured out the Christian way to go about it. So a lot of sins, particularly fake righteousness and fake status, the sins of pride have been showing up in that. Another one brought up porn, how ubiquitous pornography is in our society today and how that is coloring everything our young people are doing. Yet another deacon brought up consumerism. We have a massive problem with coveting, taking, constantly thinking about the material things we want. And we had yet another bringing up the selfishness of our individualistic society. None of us seem to believe that we are our brother's keeper. We can say this is all well and good in the 21st century, especially because sin just doesn't go away. It's not going to be gone until Christ returns and we have the final judgment. That is when sin and wickedness will be finally extinguished. But we're going to see a lot of the same sins cropping up over and over and over again, some being worse than others in terms of their prevalence. In Spanner's day, the very first thing he wants to talk about is drinking. He says, we must confess that drunkenness is to be counted among such sins. It is not only prevalent in high and low places among persons of the ecclesiastical and political estates, but also has its defenders among those who, 
while conceding that people who make a business of getting drunk are guilty of sin, nevertheless wish to maintain that it is no sin, or at least no sin worth mentioning, to quote-unquote drink occasionally, as long as it does not happen too often, to a good friend's health. At first blush, it sounds like Spanner is a teetotaler, a teetotaler, somebody who absconds with all alcohol use whatsoever. Contextually, this is not the case, especially as a Lutheran, by definition, is not a teetotaler. We drink wine at the sacrament. We believe Christ's blood is truly present there as well, but there is alcohol there, and we insist on it being wine because that's what Jesus used at the Last Supper. But also historically, we cannot forget that Spanner wrote after the Thirty Years' War, which up until that point was the bloodiest conflict in human history. Maybe number two or number three, depending on which wars we're examining here, and if we believe the body counts. But I digress. The Thirty Years' War was a massive, bloody, drudging, horrible conflict. And the German people, naturally, took to drinking after. This was already a part of their culture. There's a reason Biersteiners are so massive. When Spanner condemns drinking, he is not condemning the man who comes home after work and has a couple of beers that night before going to bed. He is saying drunkenness, drinking to the point of total inebriation. Such was the culture at the time that people were saying, oh, it's fine to do occasionally, so long as you're just not drinking every single day. What does he reply? He says, St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, regards drunkards as belonging to no better company before God than whores, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, the greedy, revilers, and robbers, all of whom are excluded by him from the kingdom of God. Here the excuse is not valid that a distinction must be made between the man who drinks all the time and seeks his own pleasure in drinking, and others who drink seldom on eventful occasions and to the health of others, as if St. Paul meant the former and not the latter. Although the validity of this objection can be denied on the basis of other passages of the scriptures, I wish simply to ask such people if they regard as damnable the life of only those who practice whoredom every day, commit adultery every day, engage in homosexual relations, steal, rob, etc. every day, or if they do not consider it too much to do these things even once a year, not to say once a month, and if they do not believe that unless such sins are earnestly and resolutely rooted out, these vicious and unrepentant persons will lose their salvation. Spanner's contemporaries would say, it's okay if you get drunk sometimes, just not all the time. He replies, this is a mortal sin. You need to repent of it. God has given us direct commandment to not be drunk, and here we are with people living completely impenitently. How shall this persist? Now, Spanner is not saying anything new. Here is from the large catechism on the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. This is Luther speaking. The name of God is profaned by us either in words or in deeds. 
Everything we do on earth may be classified as word or deed, speech or act. In the first place, then, it is profaned when men preach, teach, and speak in God's name anything that is false and deceptive, using his name to cloak lies and make them acceptable. This is the worst profanation and dishonor of the divine name. Likewise, when men grossly misuse the divine name as a cloak for their shame by swearing, cursing, conjuring, etc., in the next place, it is also profaned by an openly evil life and wicked works. When those who are called Christians and God's people are adulterers, drunkards, gluttons, jealous persons, and slanderers, here again God's name must be profaned and blasphemed because of us. It is one thing to have a beer after work. It is quite another to get drunk and to not care. We have been given a name, Christian, follower of Christ, being of Christ, and Christ has put his name upon us in this account. If we sin by getting drunk, we blaspheme God's name. We take his name in vain. We have taken Christian freedom and abused it, turning it into license. So Spanner condemns this. It was a sin that was everywhere, and no one in the church seemed to care that alcoholism, drunkenness, was just being tolerated by the laity and encouraged by everybody. But here again is another place where other pietists in the past have gone wrong. This is why the Barry Lutheran Project and the Catacomb Synod push what we call confessional pietism to the world. Because by confessional, we are 1580 Book of Concord confessional Lutherans. We are Orthodox Lutherans. And that means we agree with the Reformers teaching about Christian freedom. If something is not called a sin in Scripture, we have the right to make informed and wise choices to do it. Christians have freedom. But with the authors of Scripture, we also want to emphasize all things are lawful for me, but not all things are good for me. We also push the pietistic aspect of discipline. You see, where other groups have gone wrong, pietistic groups, whether that be the more extreme among the Methodists or the Lystadians, or other free Lutheran churches, they said, well, just drinking is wrong, don't do it. We prohibit it. You cannot be a part of our church and drink. You cannot be an elder in our church and ever touch alcohol, ever, except maybe for the sacrament. Don't do it. Those churches made the mistake of turning Spanner's words into a prohibition instead of a call for discipline. The problem with adding prohibitions where the scriptures have not added them is it creates a temptation towards works righteousness and fake morality, where people believe that they are good and godly Christians if they simply don't have a cocktail at the party or something. Others, meanwhile, have consciences so bound by this that they find themselves sinning against their consciences with secret behavioral choices that otherwise are not sin. Somebody goes to a church that says just drinking is a sin, do not do it, don't even have one. Then he returns to his house, pulls out his secret bottle of bourbon, and takes a sip, and now he hates himself. 
Such is a terrible state of affairs. Now, it's true that the Pietists did not introduce this dynamic into Christendom, but they certainly introduced it into Protestant churches, and that is something we must control with two anchors. First, the word of God and true fealty to the plain meaning of Holy Scripture, and then the Lutheran confessions, which we hold to with a quia subscription. We hold to the Book of Concord because it is a correct interpretation of Holy Scripture. Full stop. Now, it is understandable that many Christian bodies have tried to prohibit drinking entirely and to prohibit other behaviors. You know the old adage, I will not smoke, I will not chew, I will not go with girls who do. After all, we live in a society that is marked by terrible moral failures all around us. I got a newsflash for you, though. It has always been that way. Even in Spanner's day, 400 years ago, we had problems morally with the laity and with the surrounding culture. The state did not care. They did not do their jobs well, and nor was the church doing well either. But the solution is not to add the works righteousness of open prohibitions. The answer is to have Christian discipline. The balance between freedom and discipline so that we understand our freedom in Christ is for good works, Ephesians 2 verse 10. But we also have the right to make informed and hopefully godly decisions. Next week we will go through a few more of the corrupt conditions seen in the common people, that is, those in the third estate, not of the state or of the church. We're going to look at these, and unfortunately, to our shame, we will see them all too often replicated more by the clergy than by the common people. But that said, afterwards, the weeks coming after, we will go over Spanner's solutions for it, and why we here at the Catacomb Synod agree with him. But until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen. <laughs>